It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesday edition of our podcast. Whether it's happening more or we're just hearing about it more, um, I don't know. I'll have to leave that to brighter minds. But natural disasters and emergencies and floods and wildfires and famine, they've been in the news a lot lately. So how can a country or a community or even a family or a person prepare for a natural disaster or really any other kind of disaster? And what can we learn from the disasters of the past and our response there too? For all of that, we're going to need an expert, which is what Dale Buckner is. He had a distinguished career in uniform and now is the CEO of Global Guardian, which provides security services, which I actually need when I travel, but I usually need it with respect to my travel companions, not from anyone like in the country, just from the people I'm traveling with. But I want to ask him about that because it sounds uh, exciting and exotic and emergency response. That's his other area of expertise. And he does that in more than 100 countries. So, Dale, with that, I, I'm sure I have given short shrift to your background. I know I have and what you do now. So I, my first question is, tell us about yourself and what you do now. So coming out of government after 24 years, you can go into the defense industry and stay in that world. You'd be a contractor. You can go back to school. Um, Those are pretty typical paths. I wanted to do something completely different out of government that had nothing to do with my past and what I did in in the military. And I started a firm called Global Guardian 11 years ago. And what we found was when you think about what's going on in the insurance markets. If you read the fine print of insurance policies, they do not cover terrorism. They do not cover war zones. They do not cover natural disasters. So there's this immediate gap. And then if you're a corporate or a family office and you end up having just a series of vendors, right? You have a vendor for aviation, vendor for intelligence, a vendor for kidnap and ransom, a vendor for car and driver, a vendor, a vendor, a vendor, and none of them are coordinated. And what you realize also is those vendors typically have the exact same restrictions that I just described with insurance. They will not address uh, a war zone, a terrorist attack, or a natural disaster until it's quote unquote stable. So what you end up with, if you're a large corporate headquarters, is you end up with this layer. You have insurance over everything and then 10 to 15 different vendors. And if you're a family, this is almost a pickup game of the same model. Ultimately, what you end up with is a platform that does not operate in real time. It's not going to come get you in the Maui fires. It's not gonna come get you out of city center Paris when the terrorists attack. It's not going to get you out of the Ukraine when the Russians invade into Ukraine. And it's not gonna cover those costs in most cases. So that gap in the market is what drove the development of the Global Guardian minute business model where I do wanna, I wanna run towards the terrorist attack. I wanna run towards the natural disaster. I wanna run towards the war zone contractually. And then operationally, I want people in in around the world, as you described, in over 100 countries that speak the language, understand the culture, and can operate in that environment seamlessly. That's what's driven what I do today, um, and it's grown exponentially. We grow 41 to 100% year in and year out. I'll grow 58% this year. And to your point, Trey, when you opened is, I don't know if we just know there's, we know more of it that's happening or we're better educated or we have more awareness or it's actually increasing. From our seat, it is exponentially increasing conflict, however you define conflict. So I'll pause there, but that's kind of my initial where I came from and what I'm doing now. 
All right. Well, I, I have a thousand questions, but I'm going to skip all the ones I wrote down and go with the one that just popped in my head while you were while you were laying out for us what you do. So I accept the fact that insurance is Latin for say no uh, <laughs> and decline coverage. Exactly. So people are going to need someone who goes to point X, but that requires you to have a vast network because you don't. I mean, how do you not? Let's assume the CEO will fill in the blank. Yeah. Is a client, but you don't know that they're going to the Galapagos Islands until right. like three days before they go. How do you stay that connected? Yeah. So, Trey, we're in 134 countries where we have affiliates with typically expats, either European or American, sitting over them to manage these teams. Um, we started in just eight countries. I'm now in 134. We'll probably cap out at about 140 countries in the world where I have an English speaking op center on the other end of the line that can deploy personnel, boats, vehicles, aircraft. What the tagline we like to use is within minutes and hours. So when you think about this in total in the model, I've got over 6,000 agents in 134 countries at my client's disposal. I have over 8,000 vehicles to include about 400 armored vehicles. I have 53 air ambulance aircraft. These are flying hospitals that are on contract. And most importantly, they're stationed around the world. So we're not originating from Europe or the United States to get to Australia or parts of Asia and the other side of the world or even Africa. I'm right there in the backyard. And then I have 89 uh, non-US tailed aircraft because US tailed aircraft come with restrictions that I can bring in into, into foreign countries uh, as, as needed. So when you think about that template, very simply, we're monitoring the world here in the United States. We are connected into 134 teams that can validate a lot of the open source intelligence. When you think about a simple example of Hong Kong, during COVID, Hong Kong started to get really interesting with the protests. After about the first two weeks, we realized that a lot of the protests were pre-planned, they were for the cameras, and they were not enduring. They'd show up, everybody'd show, you know, 700 people would show up, protest for 30 minutes and go back home. That kind of confirmation of what you see in the open, open news source and open source intel feed compared to reality on the ground is really, really important. So that's how we've connected the dots to create this you know, network where we use this tagline, I can move in minutes and hours. The first pickup or the first client we picked up there in the Paris attacks was 17 minutes. Typically, we're two to three days faster than all of our air ambulance or medical evac competitors because our aircraft are sitting regionally across the world in different hemispheres. So that's really the magic in the model so that, to your point, I don't know where all my clients are going. I do track millions of people per year, either through what they call PNR tracking, where I track, I track flights and hotel reservations, or we actively track you on a cell phone or a SAT device. But there are cases where I'm going to have clients inevitably that didn't tell us how many people were in Ukraine. I'm going to have large corporates that didn't tell us they had a staff of 400 people in Ukraine that we now have to get out. That does happen. But because of the platform, and once I stand it up, the capacity is there to then adjust. Ultimately, that's how we got a little over 11,000 clients out of the Ukraine in the first three weeks. And we utilized the Romanian team, the Polish team, the Hungarian team, the Slovakian team to all support the Ukrainian team. That's really how this works when you get down to it. All right. I'm going to pick an example from the from the front pages of our newspapers today, the, the fires in Hawaii. Yes, sir. All right. I want you to assume that you have clients that were either working there or on vacation there. How do you navigate the fact that government, state government, federal government, they may say, no, 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 nobody's coming in here. Now, yeah. we're, we're running the show. I, we're all for free markets until we're not. Yeah. Uh, the government's running the show. How do you navigate through that? I'll ask it in almost a counter, counter narrative to that is, do you think the government, any, the United States government, let alone governments around the world, are sophisticated enough in that first, call it 48 to 72 hours of any crisis, to actually manage that environment. When you think about the US government template, the upside of government is they can bring mass and capacity. They'll do that now in Maui, 
But in the first 72 hours of almost any crisis, even the Ukraine, the border never shut down to Poland or Romania ever. Now, they put restriction on who could go after about 72 to 96 hours. They then said males from the age of 18 to 62 could not leave the country. But it takes days for governments to work. Governments are slow and bureaucratic. You know that. And even at the state local government, they're slow and bureaucratic. The upside of government is they have lots of capacity. So what we found in all of these scenarios, whether it's the Texas freeze, the California fires, the Ukraine, the fall of Kabul, uh, you know, on and on and on. In all of these scenarios in the last 11 years, there has never been a government restriction that I could not work through. When you think about the COVID and the shutting down of the globe, we were still evacuating people out of these countries where technically the airspace was closed, the border was closed. Because the teams on the ground speak the language and typically come from a government background, you can always work exceptions to policies to get people out. Ultimately, we got 221 people off the island of Maui in the first 48 hours. We used two boats off the big island and brought them in to the to the northeast side of the island where there weren't any fires. And then we flew people on private charter that originated in Oahu, quick flight to Maui, and then back to Oahu, and then they flew out commercially. So when you think about any crisis, it always has the same template. You've got to identify where the hotspot is and the threat. You want to move away from that. And then you want to utilize an asset to get your people to a quote unquote safe zone. Because this is an island, the safe zones are the big island primarily and Oahu primarily just because of commercial traffic. But you could use that template and whether it's the Texas freeze where we're taking people out of Texas, taking them into Louisiana or Oklahoma and then putting them up in a hotel and getting them food and water and safety. So that template applies across the board. But to, to end where you started, Ultimately, governments are slow and bureaucratic. Their value is at the back end, typically. Um, it's not during the initial phase of the crisis. More of my conversation with the CEO of Global Guardian, Mr. Dale Buckner, is coming up. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. All right. You and I have made reference. We made reference to war, which sometimes provides a lot of advance notice. I mean, you you served. I did not. I'm pretty sure Putin forecast what he was going to do in Ukraine. If you like circumstantial evidence, I guess massing your troops at the border would be circumstantial evidence of that. You've got wildfires, which can kind of spring up in hours. We have a hurricane right now hitting California, which Thanks to modern technology, we have several days notice, maybe more than that. So some things you can prepare for, some things you cannot. Mm -hmm. Help us understand, are there examples where things could have been prepared for better, uh, that you did have enough notice and your response was inadequate? Do you sit there and watch, okay, there's a hurricane getting ready to hit. There's a tsunami getting ready to hit. Tornadoes are another example. You don't have a lot of notice. Mm -hmm. So how do you react to those where you have notice versus you don't? And how can government do a better job of preparing if you do have notice? Yeah. So number one, I I run two operation centers here in the U.S., and then they're spidered out to 134 English-speaking operation centers. We're watching on one pane of glass where you can see on just one dashboard, I can see all my clients. I can see every major disruptive event in the world. I can track, we're tracking all the hurricanes in real time. You can see their path. So I'll use that as my first example. Yes, we're tracking hurricanes. And if you look at Fort Myers last year in the spring, um, when you think about that, think about how inaccurate, as good as that technology is, We do have a sense of track, but the track is never actually accurate. When we looked at what happened in 2017 with the track that hit the uh, Virgin Islands and then Puerto Rico, two back-to-back hurricanes, and then last year with Fort Myers, the night before where the path actually ripped through Fort Myers, that just about 12 hours out, it was still tracking towards Tampa, going much further north than it did. Ultimately, as good as the technology is on storm tracking that would give you advance, 
it's still never right, Trey. That, that's the first lesson learned in this. When you think about war, yes, we saw the Ukraine happening, and we put out a report, a 55-page report, 43 days prior, stating there's a 70% chance that there is going to be invasion by land, east, air, and sea by the Russians. There's a 20% chance that this will be a full-scale invasion, and there's a 10% chance we're going to find a diplomatic way out. Very forecastable, you know, easy to prepare for because you had several months for it. Um, and then you had the fall of Kabul. Nobody saw that coming. It was it was poorly prepared, and we all had to move very quickly. Um, when you think about an active shooter, you can't prepare for that on the front end. There's not typically not a lot of prep. And when you think about these wildfires coming out of no, there's not a lot of prep. So my answer is it's mixed. Yes, you're watching the world in near real time. And when we see a hot spot, something that's going on in Israel, something that's going on in Brazil, we're going to forecast our, to our clients and go, hey, we're tracking the following. Who else might be there? What other concerns might you have? So we're always trying to be ahead. Ultimately, in the Paris attacks, we had no warning. There was ended up being six attack sites in Paris in 2015, no warning whatsoever. And at that point, you're reactive. And this all goes down to the model. When you have to be reactive, if you don't have ground forces in that vicinity, then you're going to be slow and bureaucratic. If you do, now you have efficiency in that you can task, prioritize, and go. So ultimately, when you think about this, this is you're preparing and monitoring as much as humanly possible, knowing the tech will never be right, knowing that alerts will never solve the problem. I know there's this enormous discussion in Maui about the sirens didn't go off. There's going to be more you know, room for blame for lots of different people and agencies and so on and so forth. I was just in Hawaii just two weeks prior to the fires, not in Maui, but in Oahu. Though, and I lived there in four, for four years in Oahu when my early part of my military career. When the sirens go off, no one does anything. They, you know, they kind of puddle around. They might get out of the water, look around. They primarily, the, the locals know that it's primarily utilized for tsunamis, nothing else. So let's assume the siren did go off. 90% of the, the people would have looked around. If there's no speaker or advice or something given to be communicated, that ultimately nobody's really going to do anything with it. So I don't think even if the siren went off, that it saves the day. Is the the potential that could have saved some lives? Potentially. But the masses, I don't think it's a major factor in preventing what happened in Maui. In the aftermath of something like the fires in Hawaii, or you can pick another natural disaster, it strikes me that communication is like number one. Is that, it, I mean, I guess public safety is number one, but, but communication would be like tied to it, I guess. What's the biggest shortfall or shortcoming in the aftermath, because listening to what you said about the siren, I also heard the, the failure to divert water uh, was an issue in Hawaii. But I don't like I don't want to be overly simplistic, but reliable communication, real time, accurate facts seems to me to be pretty high up a list of priorities of what you're looking for. Yeah. So we do we do alerts here. So does lots of different agencies where you've got people where an incident has started. So this is kind of, you know, this has been my answer for 11 years, Trey. Let's assume you were in Maui and you were among my clients or you are uh, there and you you get an alert from the government. Let's assume that I sent you an alert that says there's now wildfires in Maui. That can be valuable, frankly, if you're sitting outside of the disaster zone. So if you are in Paris or you're in Kabul or you're in you know, the eastern side of Ukraine, sending you an alert after it's too late or it's moving so quickly that it doesn't really make a difference. If there's an active shooter in Vegas and you're pinned down and seven minutes later you receive an alert that says there's an active shooter and you're pinned down, it doesn't do anything. My point being that the alert system is really for the people outside of the crisis zone. If you're sitting outside of it, then you know not to go towards it. If you would have had plans in 2015 to go to Paris that night and you get an alert that say there's been seven or six terrorist attack sites, don't go to Paris, well, then that's valuable for you. But if you're the person in the opera house right next to a rock concert where 80 plus people are shot and killed, it doesn't solve the problem. So communication 
My answer is it's part of it. It doesn't solve the problem because it can't answer the quote unquote, so what question, meaning you're in Maui, you're in your hotel or home, you get an alert and the fire is right on you right there. That alert is not going to save your life. What you do, whether someone assists you or what you unilaterally do to get yourself away from that threat, being an active shooter, being a war zone, being soldiers, tanks, being a natural disaster, earthquake, fire, uh, whatever it might be, what you do to get out of that scenario or someone that's going to assist you to get you out of that threat zone, that's what really matters. So it really is, it, it depends on where you sit and it depends on your perspective physically of where you are in, in concert to that threat. All right, you mentioned government is great on the on the resource, on the back end, maybe on the way back end. Yeah. Uh, lots of money, lots of toys. If you were running FEMA and you said, okay, help on the back end is wonderful, but we need to be better on the front end. We're yep. too bureaucratic. We're not nimble enough. And government were to say, look, we're going to triple your salary as the CEO of your of Global Guardian to be FEMA, which I'm pretty sure they won't. But yep. but in my hypo, they are. Sure. What would you change? How yep. would you make government more nimble on the front end? Yeah. So specifically to the U.S. government here, because it'd be a long just conversation if we went global. So think about in my mind, because I think about these things constantly because I came from government. And now I'm in a private setting. What I've realized is, and I'll use Fort Myers as an example, we Global Guardian, I put teams from Miami to Jacksonville to Tampa to Naples, Florida, because no one really knew where that track was going to go. My point being, if I can posture high water vehicles, agents with medical kits in front of a storm, why does FEMA wait till the storm passes? Why can they not be preemptive? We know that Florida, Louisiana, Texas, and now California, we're now starting to see consistently we've had this hurricane path for decades off the Atlantic. Why does FEMA not pre-position assets? Because a lot of this stuff, you're going to see it. There's massive amounts of assets that come in after the fact. My question would be, why aren't they pre-postured? Even if they're just sitting in the state next door, why do they wait? If we know there's a hurricane barreling towards Florida, why aren't all those assets literally sitting on the Georgia-Florida line waiting for it to pass? And then literally within hours, they're there versus what we see every time. It takes four days for assets to get there. It takes two weeks until they're up and running. It's incredibly slow and bureaucratic. My point being... I think we know the patterns of where we might have earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, so on and so forth. Why are we not posturing those assets to be in in or right at the cusp of those crisis response zones? We know what they're going to be historically for the most part. That's my first primary answer. Number two is every time the government there's a crisis and there's a response, if it's not not local law enforcement, local EMS, outside of that, when you think about this, it's a pickup game almost every time. And my question would be, why are those assets that need to be brought in to create capacity not pre-planned and on pre-contracts? Um, in some cases, they are most cases they're not. The response after each of these incidents, it ends up being a pickup game. They surge to get contractors in there, and it's slow and bureaucratic. If you had all of these contracts in already pre-positioned, already signed off, now your response, it literally would cut days to weeks, if not months. So those are my two complaints coming from the government, knowing how it works, that if, if to your point, Trey, you put me in charge of it. I want to pre-position assets where I know historically we have these issues. And then two, I want all of these contracted assets already, already contracted, pre-postured. In very few situations is that the case. There's some, but certainly not at the scale we need to, do, to address these things quickly and efficiently. All right. As you survey, let's just say the last five, 10 years, Natural disasters, emergencies, active shooters, war, fill in the blank. You, are, you mentioned pre-posturing assets, and you mentioned 
you know, being a little better prepared on the contractor side, what yep. else makes you pull your hair out when you watch governments respond to fill in the blank? What makes you say there is such a better way? Yeah. So I'll use Puerto Rico as the example. In 2017, we were, we were there for about nine weeks. And what you're going to find is we were, so we pre-postured. I put people, vehicles, and then I contracted two helicopters and two fixed-wing aircraft six days prior because we saw the storms coming. And the basic contract was we we basically contracted 10 boats and those four aircraft and said, if they survive, they're now ours. And then I put a team of 15 guys in hotels in Umacao, the eastern northeastern side of Puerto Rico. That's my version of pre-posturing. And what ended up happening is they had combo suites and satellite phones and medical gear and so on and so forth. They're there physically pre-postured. The storm goes by. We only lose one boat. We keep all the aviation assets and we kept all the vehicles. We were on site with our clients within six hours of the storm passing and moving very, very quickly. So when you think about that in the speed of it, the ability to prepare for that and then bolt on within hours afterward and days additional resources, that efficiency is how we kind of get there. That efficiency to be ready and not think from a you know a, the mental perspective or as a tempo that I'm gonna I'm only gonna move assets after the fact. It just won't work. And that that's the biggest problem with the template of the government. All right. If someone listening says, God, he seems like somebody great to work for, uh, I get the sense people don't like fill out applications. They don't go to job fairs and say, oh, well, there's Global Guardian. They're hiring. I mean, do you like go find people and say, let's work something out? Be, be on contract with me? Yeah. So, Trey, we do hire openly. I mean, you go to the website, there's there's job postings, right? Because this is growing so quickly. But ultimately, when you look, if you go to the website and look at the the, the brand of people, if you will, I have ex-Secret Service, ex-FBI, ex-CIA, and ex-Special Forces, and ex-Military, ex-Law Enforcement, for the most part. And then the staff is filled out with what you would expect. Yes, this is a trust business. Most of my chief security officers in the Fortune 1000, they have to have a bona fides because they come from those tribes of ex-CIA, ex-Secret Service, ex-FBI. They come from that world, right? So there's an automatic trust built with those relationships. But yes, a lot of the people that we bring on internally are through relationships and, and enduring trusted experiences from their past life in the government. With our affiliates, what you'll find, it's a very simple template or a very similar template and that most of our teams were ex-government something for the most part, but now they're in the corporate space. What we don't want to be is a government contractor. I'm not in that world. I don't want to be in that space. I have a NASA contract for the astronauts and medical evacuation for them and things like that, but it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things. We're very focused on what we think is the greatest gap in the market, which is for corporate America and families to be served very quickly, very efficiently, and to fill that gap of the lack of government support, the lack of insurance, and the lack of all these different vendors who won't operate in real time and have these insurance-esque type restrictions on war zones, natural disasters, and terrorism. I'm not asking you to spill any trade secrets, and you're too sophisticated to do it, even if I were to ask. I'm not smart enough to ask that question. But when I hear you talk, I think, okay, corporate, I get Families, you would probably have to be on the wealthy side of families. I mean, I, 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 my wife does from time to time listening to this podcast. I could hear her saying, hey, I got a lot more confidence in Dale to get me out of Israel than I do you, Trey. So I'm going to go I'm going to go hire Global Guardian. The service you provide cannot be cheap. Trey, it's a mixed it, it's a mixed answer. Number one, you could go on our website right now. You can buy an what we call air ambulance membership, which gets you two global medevacs and includes the United States a year. And we, unlike insurance or we, unlike many of our competitors, we will fly you or your family to any hospital or any city in the world of your choosing, not ours, 
We're not an insurance firm picking the closest hospital or airport, so on and so forth. You choose where you go. And that flight might cost $300,000. That flight might cost $75,000. You will pay nothing for it. That annual membership is $265 a year for an individual and $385 for a family of five. So this is very affordable on the medical evacuation side. And it has two key differentials. One, I will support you in the United States, which insurance, travel insurance won't, because they'll say, oh, you ripped your foot open diving in Key West. We're just going to medevac you or, you know, EMS you up to Miami. You could you could use that template across the U.S. We will take you home, if you will. On the kidnap and ransom side, we sell a kidnap and ransom platform, an individual membership, again, for $285 a year that covers all the costs associated with your negotiation getting you back. And then I have a security response membership. Again, if you were in Mexico when there was an earthquake or you're in you know, the Paris attacks or the Turkey coup, if you're in any of those environments, we will come get you, move you away from that threat, put you into a safe environment and then stop. Now, I won't now, admittedly, I'm not going to fly you all back all the way back to your your hometown, but I will come get you out of that high risk environment, get you to a safe zone. And you pay nothing for all of those platforms other than the annual membership. So for less than three hundred dollars a year or less than five hundred dollars a year for both an individual and a family, I can cover your medical evac globally to include the U.S. I can cover all the cost of kidnap and ransom and I can cover your security response. If you were in Maui. And I had to move you from point A to point B to get you a safe zone. You pay $285 for that service. Now, yes, if we're moving hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of people out of the Ukraine as a corporate client, that is a war zone. And I'm going to be young. There's going to be material expenses. It can be expensive uh, for those kinds of movements. The movement out of Kabul, we moved a little over 800 clients, some families, believe it or not, um, those things were trending towards two to four to $5,000 for an evacuation. So yes, that I would say openly, it can be expensive. But some of these membership programs that are very valuable and have real capacity because of the model we have, that's very inexpensive. And then, of course, if you're just an air ambulance member or a security response member and you find yourself having a requirement that's above and beyond the terms of that membership, we're going to support you and, and we'll be very mindful of cost. Uh, it really depends on the scenario, if you will. No, right, I'm going to give you another fact pattern. I could see right now that I would be traveling. I'm going to pick Mexico. Yep. I'm traveling down to Mexico and I'm kidnapped. Yep. And my wife says, I have a strict policy against negotiating with terrorists. I'm going to leave him down there. I'm a person of principle and good luck to you, Trey. I, I'm not negotiating. Yeah. She didn't even want to know what they want. She just, she's just not going to negotiate. Okay. Have you seen any of the Denzel Washington movies like, like Equalizer or Man on Fire? Sure. Of course. Of course. How realistic is that? You've got private folks who can go do things that government either can't or won't do. Yeah. And is it because they don't have to play by the same rules or tell me how ridiculous man on fire and equalizer are. So I'll quit watching them every time they come on. So to start with what you see in Hollywood, of course, it's accentuated and and it's intentionally entertaining, right? But are there parts and pieces of those scenarios in those movies that we all watch that are incredibly true? The answer is yes. The way these negotiations are executed in Mexico, we've had 11 kidnap ransom cases. We've had 37 ransom cases on the cyber side. Um, and in each one of these, and of note, we executed the third largest cyber ransom case in U.S. history at the time. It's probably been surpassed. And we've gotten all 11 of our kidnap and ransom cases, all 11 of of all come back here safely. Um, Ultimately, that negotiation, I've watched our negotiators. We have 18 globally resourced negotiators that handle these cases, and specifically to Central South America and Mexico. So the last case in Mexico, that negotiator went 36 hours straight, eating, never slept, never went down, you know, going to the bathroom, the whole deal, the whole time, never came off the phone, not once in 36 straight hours. 
had to keep plugging the phone in to keep it alive and negotiate his way out of this. Ultimately, you want it to be a financial transaction, meaning I don't want to go in there guns blazing. We're, we're not Delta. We're not SEAL Team 6. We're not going to go do hostage negotiation rescues, if you will. We want to, if you're insured, we want to make sure that we get close to what you're covered on. And we want a financial transaction where the kidnappers get what they want. We get what we want, which is your safe return, and that we get out of the scenario. Ultimately, yes, the government, you know, there's some there's some elements here of truth in that they don't negotiate with terrorists. There's also some nuance there. But ultimately, can privately these things be addressed more efficiently, more effectively, and quietly in most cases where your family or your corporate headquarters doesn't want that exposed in the press? The answer is yes. And, and majority of kidnap and ransom cases are handled privately and quietly and not disclosed. So in all of these cases, the element of the negotiation part, the element of a quid pro quo and a trade, all of that is incredibly real. From a corporate standpoint, we want these things to be a financial transaction for your safe return, not a go in and, you know, guns blazing like Denzel Washington and Man on Fire, where it's kinetic, it's physical. We don't want to do that if we can avoid that at all costs. All right. So that's after the fact. If someone were stationed in, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. uh, Do you provide security uh, like round the clock security, even for long periods of time? Yeah. So in the United States and a few places around the world, we have details that are dedicated just to that client. So here in D.C., out in San Francisco, uh, a couple of places in Europe where I have anywhere between eight to 16 agents, 24 hours a day armed, monitoring that campus for my client. And then every physical movement that their children make, their spouse makes, or when they go back and forth to work, I have agents with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. On an episodic basis, we're running about 130 to 175 what we call missions, meaning car and driver, event support, uh, airport transfers a month. On average, we touch 63 countries a month. So whether you're a large bank based out of New York City visiting and wanting to meet the president of Mexico, where you land at the FBO, we pick you up in armored vehicles, we've already pre-coordinated the vehicles to enter the presidential palace, and you leave, or it's just we're picking you up at the airport in Nigeria and you want a safe movement to the oil and gas headquarters, we'll execute that movement for you with agents. So there's a lot in between, but the key takeaway here is whether you need an airport transfer in some of these medium to high risk countries where you should not be using Uber, you should not be using Lyft, and you should not be using taxis, that's the void in the market that we fill with those mission sets. And again, we're, we're hitting about 63 countries a month. And this fall, as we come out of summer and everybody puts the kids back in school, from now all the way to Christmas, that those numbers exponentially go higher and higher and higher and increase. We're going to take a quick break. More of my conversation with Dale Buckner is next. How much of your time is spent vetting folks in other countries that might potentially be partners or contractors with you? Because, I mean, here... We can go access certain databases and find things out, but I'll imagine it's tougher in other countries. Of course it is. So you think about Saudi Arabia, you think about Russia, you think about China. These are very large countries. Even Mexico is a very large country. So we have three affiliates in Mexico to cover the entire country with some specialty and nuance. We have one core affiliate that does, you know, 85% of it. Then we have some specialties in Mexico, for example. Um, when you think about those countries, vast countries, that the culture is different, the government regulation is different, the oversight is different, and of course, the language is different. So when you take in all of those things, you have to have someone that thinks, number one, on a global global perspective, truly global that understands those nuance, understands you have to work within that culture and that language 
um, and that the law enforcement that is around that market. They're very different. I cannot treat the team in Tokyo the exact same way I treat the team in Saudi Arabia and the exact same way we treat the team in Honduras. They're all very different and they have different capabilities, different, different backgrounds uh, that you really have to manage. The key here is to create that baseline standard. When do you talk? How do you dress? How do you prepare the car? What's your basic medical package? What is your basic security protocol? Those things you can standardize. There are a whole host of other things you cannot standardize. And you have to be comfortable working with that. And you have to be comfortable operating with people that might think differently than you. They might have a different optic than you. And that that part of it, making that work and creating that synergy is really the challenge. We think we've gotten really good at this. We've been at it 11 years. Again, we started just eight countries. We're now in 134. We'll probably cap, as I opened with, about 140 countries around the world. It's a mindset trade. That's what makes this work at the end of the day. Well, it sounds to me like if you wanted to, you would have something to worry about every single waking second of your life yeah. if you chose to do that. Yeah. Because... Because it seems to me like, I, I mean, you almost live, I don't want to, I mean, bad news is really the only news you get, I guess. I mean, people don't say, hey, I need you to know I, this, this, uh, my child, you know, won the spelling bee at school. It's all bad news. So how, how do you deal with that? So, Trey, it's actually pretty equal. And in here, I'll explain it and it'll make perfect sense to you. At this point, the firm has grown to the point where I don't see the day-to-day. -day. There's a thousand things that happen at my firm every day that I have no idea of who we're supporting where in the world. It's just it, the, the scale and capacity of this has gotten so big, I can't keep up to it. Number two, I, to your point, I hear the really good news or I hear the really bad news, right? So when we lift, we're in the middle of a medevac right now. When that medevac lifts off and that person lives, you know, there's a high that is associated with that. When we get the last bus across, you know, from Ukraine into Poland, we reach 11,000 clients. It's a milestone we're celebrating. You also get the, hey, we cannot get to these people right now. We're going to have to wait three days because they're pinned down and the Russians have taken over that town. You're going to deal with that too. So it is a never ending cycle. Yes, I'm, you know, I'm alerted of major events at this point. And ultimately, as a business leader, I'm really woke up for three reasons. Number one, is it a high risk decision? Because I, I am the only one that can make those decisions ultimately. Number two, it's a high risk financial decision. How much risk are we willing to take on putting an aircraft up in the air or sending, you know, armored vehicles into certain environments? And what's that cost associated with that? And do we have exposure, financial exposure? And then lastly, the request. You can imagine at this point, Trey, we get requests to do some pretty weird things. Like we'll get requests to move diamonds and arms and, and we just, we won't engage those things, but we get those requests. And you have to be very careful of who your client base is, right? There's a lot of unsavory people in the around the world that will ask you to do unsavory things. We're constantly doing the due diligence on, is this the kind of client is it going to be longstanding? Does it have long-term value? And are we operating in a legal professional manner that won't put our brand at risk? Those are the big three things for me that I get engaged in at this point. Because to your, to your point, if I stood in the op center, which is five feet behind me, 24 hours a day, I'd never sleep. Like it just wouldn't happen. But I've got enough quality subordinate leaders. The system and the, and the capacity of that platform has been built out such that I really do feel quite good and I do sleep very good at night. And I, you know, they know those three criteria to wake me up and I leave my phone on and it's sitting on my headboard and on high volume. And I will wake up for those decisions, of course. Um, and then lastly, when there is a Maui, when there is a hurricane in Puerto Rico, when there is the Ukrainian war, so on and so forth. Yes. In the first, I'd call it the 48 to 72 hours, maybe 96 hours. I'll be very involved. I'll be here till late at night, two, three in the morning, watching those things starting to and to create momentum. Once I feel it starts to normalize, then I'll back out and let the subordinate leaders take the reins of it again. 
Dale, it sounded to me like you had a pretty interesting life when you were in the military. I mean, that that sounded like it would have been challenging and fun and exciting. Yeah. You never thought about just like playing golf or teaching at a community college. I mean, <laughs> you, you really wanted to do this as your second yeah. chapter. Yeah. So Tram, 55 years old and I still have just a ton of energy. So I know that I would be bored. I don't need to work anymore. I just, in fact, had a, a financial transaction um, with the firm just literally three weeks ago, and I have a full military retirement. So the combination, I really don't need to work anymore. The problem for me is I still, as I described, that aircraft's going to lift off with that patient and they've got a brain injury, and we know that we're going to save their life. That for me is the juice. Um, that for me is fulfilling and I'm not ready to hang it up yet. I I'd like to do this for another five plus years. Maybe I'll change my mind when you know, I get to 60 and go another five after that. I don't know. Uh, no one really knows, you know, who knows if I'm going to have a health issue, who, who knows if I get in a car accident, none of that's, you know, TBD, but ultimately I do love it. I do live for it. Um, I have, since I started, I think when you're an entrepreneur, and you start some something with a small group of people, which we did. This was 100% private till recently. It was all individual shareholders, no institutional shareholders at all, no debt of any kind. When you started and it's your baby for all intents and purposes with some trusted investors, which I had, um, I think that it's it's very gratifying. And seeing it grow, seeing the good we're doing around the world for people is very satisfying. You know, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. So it is going to be hard for me to decompress off of that. I'm not quite ready is what I would say. Well, 130 countries just strikes me, and I'm sure everybody else listening, as a staggering scale. Um, I don't know how many countries there are in the world. Whatever day I was supposed to learn that in geography class, I skipped. I don't have any idea. How many, but, it, but it sounds like a, a lot of the world is covered by y'all. It is. And again, the, the beauty of, you know, if you're going into a place like Guinea-Bissau, the third poorest country in Western Africa, I don't have a team there because there's not a, not enough Western travelers, not enough Western investment. I'm not going to stand a 24-hour team up there. But what I can do is bring in the team from Nigeria that understands the terrain, understand what's going on there and can navigate that. So when you think about that 134 country, it's almost like a lily pad into these other markets. Where I can't go is I can't go into Iran. I can't go into North Korea. And there's only a few things I can do in a place like Cuba. So, and then we're still up and running. We don't fall under any of the restrictions in Russia. So we're still supporting clients there. I can still, you know, I still have a major bank that legally it doesn't bump into any restrictions on sending money back and forth. So we're still there supporting clients. It's gotten much, much smaller. Most of the West, as you know, has pulled out. We're not doing a lot in Russia. There's still a few things that pop up here and there. Um, but that footprint and that ability to move in minutes and hours and do things that others won't contractually is really, really valuable at this point. I'm going to let you go with this one. You mentioned North Korea. I, I think one of the more sobering books I have ever read in my life, uh, I think I'm going to get the title right, The Orphan Master's Son. It's a book on North Korea. Uh, it won a bunch of awards. I can't imagine why somebody would like want to go there. But if you find yourself in trouble in North Korea, that's just no hope zone, right? I mean, there's nobody yeah. that's going to come help you, are there? That is a government only response. That's what I would tell you, is that there are some relationships in the background, maybe. But ultimately, if you're in North Korea and you get hemmed up or have a problem there, from a pure corporate standpoint, there's almost no way I can help you. Now, I can I can connect you to some folks that do have some relationships in the country at best. For the most part, it is now a government-to-government -government discussion with some worker bees underneath uh, that with relationships. But that's as good as it's going to get. And to your point, I'm not going to be able to help you in a material way in North Korea other than to hand you off. Dale, what have I not asked you that I should have? And you're sitting there thinking, how could this idiot lawyer not have asked me this already? Well, I, I certainly don't have that. I think the the question that I'll, I'll kind of self-impose myself is just most people kind of lead to this question. 
And they say, Dale, do you think that the environment, the United States and globally, you know, is it going to calm down? Is it going to standardize? Is, is it going to kind of decompress a little bit? When you think about the United States and COVID, three years in a row, the highest murder rates in the history of the country since we've been keeping records, right? When you think of the war and you think of famine and, and war zones and natural disasters and terrorism, terrorism has statistically come down, but it's still out there and it still happens in different ways and shapes and forms. Ultimately, people typically end with, do you think that we're going to come down in these statistically, we're going to have less violence, less threat, less conflict? And my answer is no. I, I hate to sound dark. I do live in this world where I'm responding to some, some really interesting events in the world. Ultimately, I think murder rates ebb and flow. You know, economics have a lot to do with that, what's happening in the economy and what people have in their hand. But there's culturally things going on in our country and abroad where the social fabric and the, the trust and confidence with government is fraying in a way that there are changes going on with the human condition around the world that I think drives, unfortunately, a narrative where I do think these global disruptive events all the way down to your local crime rate continue to increase, unfortunately. And I do think the conflict of war and terrorism and, and what's going on with our climate is all driving these different conflict zones um, and these flare-ups. And I don't think it's going to go away and I don't think it's going to settle. Uh, it'll ebb and flow in different ways, ways and forms. But ultimately, I do think if you're a business leader or you're a parent, that you have to view the world from a slightly different lens and you have to be more protective than ever before, unfortunately. I think that's reality. It doesn't mean you shouldn't travel to Mexico. I would tell you, you should go. You just need to know where to go, be aware of the pitfalls and be prepared and know what system you're going to use if you have a problem. We're not telling people to not engage the world and not travel. In fact, it's the opposite. We want you to get out there. We just want you to do it in a way that is more mindful and thoughtful than ever before. That's all. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today has been Dale Buckner. Uh, I thought he had a pretty fascinating like life and career before all of this. I mean, he's very highly decorated career with the military, and he was only warming up. Now he's got like the whole world that could keep him up at night. And it sounds like he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So he's got, I think he committed to at least five years and maybe 10 more years running Global Guardian. I cannot thank you enough for shedding light on what I find a fascinating series of topics. All the best to you. I hope that your uh, subordinate leaders, is that what you call them, subordinate leadership? Yes, sir. I hope they learn those three reasons to wake you up. And they don't start adding a fourth, fifth, or a sixth to that. Or you may have a different group of subordinate leaders if yes, they sir. start waking you up too much. Dale Buckner, thank you so much. Thank you, Trey. Have a great day. All right. You take care. And thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.